0: Well, it's, um, it's a great privilege for me to be able to stand here and uh, share with you. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, meeting with um, a lot of the people I work with and sharing with them that I might have to stop um, speaking to parliamentary groups, because the last time I did something like this was for the National Prayer Breakfast in Australia. Um, I delivered my talk in the morning. Um, uh, later that morning, the Cabinet asked if I would be prepared to meet with them and have a dinner. Uh, then at lunchtime, it was announced that there was gonna be the leadership challenge <laughs> against the sitting prime minister was gonna be brought forward to a vote that night. Um, I assumed the dinner would be canceled. at uh, 5.30, I was walking around the shopping mall looking for something to eat when I got the phone call saying we're looking forward to seeing you at six. Uh, spent the entire evening having dinner with the cabinet as they went in and out of a room, taking phone calls and meeting with various people. And then ended the evening um, in a large atrium looking at the upper and lower house as the vote was called. And as we walked out, um, I came in under one uh, administration and I left under another. And so it was felt maybe it was a bit risky for me to do this again. Um, Although I suppose, depending on your affiliation in the room, you may think a change of leadership could be a good or a bad thing, Uh, but we won't say very much about that. I think the other thing just to say is when I suggested to Mark, um, and we talked about the possibility of addressing this kind of theme, uh, uh, recent events have obviously overtaken partly, uh, some of the ground uh, that I was going to cover. So what I'm going to try and do is, is portray an overview um, uh, and touch on a few issues and then really throw this open for you for questions, uh, which I hope, I hope will be helpful. Over the last uh, four or five months, I've had the privilege of speaking to uh, political leaders, both East and West and also North and Southern Hemisphere, uh, sometimes in closed private consultations, sometimes publicly. And at the same time, also had the great privilege of speaking to business leaders, both East and West, North and and Southern Hemisphere, who between them control uh, trillions of investment dollars or of capital. And the thing that has interested me the most, as I've been able to travel from one place to another, is how in every one of those instances, the inviting party asked me to address exactly the same issue, which was one of reconciliation. Every group, either of these leading private equity people or sometimes publicly uh, uh, large uh, public equity uh, investment groups and all of these political leaders, that was the number one issue they felt they were dealing with as they looked at the world and the reality that was facing them. What does it mean to try to gr- bring a pr- group of people together? There seems to be no one whom we're united around, no set of uniting values that holds us together. How do we understand that in the society in which we live and how therefore do we actually process the kinds of decisions or influence that we actually have? And as you travel across multiple cultures right across the world and you're hearing people raise exactly the same set of issues and questions, it forces and makes you reflect and think quite deeply on what it is um, that they're picking up on. Now at the same time, um, a few months ago I brought um, Guru's latest book, I don't know how many of you have read, any issue guru. He doesn't write very quickly. He tends to research anything from five to ten years and then he occasionally publishes a book. Um, So if you haven't read any of his books, the one that you may be familiar of will be Remains of the Day, which was made into a film with Anthony Hopkins. But in his latest book, the, the title is The Buried Giant. And it's a very unusual book in one sense. It actually moves terribly slowly, but I enjoyed every minute of it. He sets his novel in early Christian Britain shortly after the time of King Arthur but the challenge that all of the main characters face in this novel is that they're in a state of forgetfulness people can't remember the past they can't remember recent events sometimes they occasionally remember gosh so and so, and so disappeared a few weeks ago and now it's as if no one can even remember what happened and they're wrestling with what does it mean why is this the case now I guess you might have to put your fingers in the ears if you want to read your book uh, and have the surprise. But without trying to ruin it, the way the novel ends is with a battle, with a force that is causing people to forget. They cannot remember. And if they win this battle, people will suddenly remember the past. And then you find these incredible lines. When the main character who is wondering, should we allow people to recover their memory, says this, when quick-tongued men make ancient grievances, rhyme with fresh desire for land and conquest, revenge will destroy everything. And so the main characters are reflecting back, saying there is no unity here. The reason why we are living peaceably together is we're ignorant of the past. But if we could remember the past, and go back down through the centuries and pick up on ancient grievances and retell them today, is there any hope for peace and unity in our land? And so that is now the battle they have. Do they recover their memory but perhaps lose their peace? Or is it better not to be able to remember and simply have everyone living together because they have no real idea about who they are? And in that sense, Ishiguro's latest novel is a striking Commentary on some of the battles that we're faced in the developed world Now I don't have time to run through all of these in detail as they would have But you will be much more aware and have far more insight than I when we look at the kinds of things Which are driving some of our debates issues of national identity not just in this country But indeed right across the world how we define ourselves and our heritage How do we what is the thing that unites us and pulls us together. Is there some kind of lasting reconciliation when we can look back on ancient grievances and past wrongs? And we're struggling and we're wrestling with those kinds of questions. We're wrestling with questions of personal identity. How do we understand who we are? It was a G.K. Chesterton who very ably said that in the uh, political realm, we often use medical analogies. And he questioned the validity of that. The way he put it was this, he said, He says, you'll very often hear people say, look, we're sick and we're unwell and we have to make everything better. And he said, the reason I'm nervous about this is when you talk to doctors, he says, what doctors do is they argue about why someone is ill. They can't agree on the cause of the sickness, but they're all united on what a healthy body looks like. So the doctors by necessity may send you home with one leg less, but they will never in some kind of strange creative rapture send you home with one leg more. However, he's saying, In the political and social sciences realm, in the realm of the social sciences, it's very different. Everyone seems happy to admit that something is wrong. What we can't agree on is what a healthy body looks like. The reason we'll tear each other's eyes out, he says, is not because we're disagreeing that something feels it's gone, fallen apart. The reason we'll tear each other's eyes out is we can't agree on what the solution is. And what one person proposes as a solution to another person is worse than the problem it seeks to solve. And so we find raising this very important question. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a healthy, whole life? David Piketty's uh, very controversial book, Capital, which is well worth reading, even though it is over a thousand pages long. um, And even though it has been much, much critiqued, his basic idea that if the rate of return on capital exceeds the rate of growth of income within an economy will lead to exclusion and social unrest is surely correct. And in every developed economy in which I have spoken, and I'm aware of, this is one of the issues that many people are wrestling with. I know in the city where I live, even if I was a senior paid consultant at the um, Oxford University's leading research hospital, that I would not be able to afford to buy the house I bought 20 years ago today off that salary. It simply wouldn't be, simply wouldn't be possible. And so we find ourselves wrestling with all of these, these kinds of issues. They cause issues of social unrest, personal unrest, political unrest. They cause a sense of of problem. Now, what I would like to try and do is, using that as a backdrop, have a look at what um, uh, the Bible has to say about this, particularly in the life of St. Paul. Now, I don't know, I'm sure most of you are very uh, familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, but I don't know if you've ever heard anyone speak to you out of the very first verse, which says this, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes." Now, I don't know how many times you may have heard those words or read them, if at all, but believe it or not, partly because I live in a very obscure city, Oxford, I can spend 20 minutes talking about that. (laughs) Now, here is the question. Paul is writing to a powerful economic center. The Romans destroyed the city of Corinth. It was a threat to their exercise of power. They figured that eventually they figured out they couldn't live without it. They had to rebuild it. It was that important to the trade and political routes and also for the projection of power. They had to rebuild a a city which they had leveled to the ground. Now it was a city which was riddled with with wealth, with power, but also had somewhere between 300 to 450,000 slaves. So it was a city of incredible contrast. And it's also a city which was at war with itself, even amongst the Christian community. As a matter of fact, when Paul actually writes to this group of people, he says, I mean it's translated here in English, uh, I have heard that there are quarrels amongst you, in uh, verse 11 of chapter 1. Now that's a nice English soft translation. The word translated quarrel there is is the Greek word Ares, which comes from the Greek word Ares, the goddess of war. Paul literally writes and says to them, the goddess of war has been released amongst you. And that is a very powerful image. Now the question comes up therefore, especially if you have a mind that likes to ask strange questions, why is it at the beginning of a letter in which Paul will have to defend his leadership, defend his authority, exercise his power, talk about discipline, that is he start by saying, hi, I'm writing to you, as is my brother Sosthenes. So the question I first ask is, well, who on earth is Sosthenes? And the answer is, well, we may actually have some insight there. When Paul went to Corinth and spoke about the reconciling power of Jesus Christ, he was opposed by the leader of the local synagogue, a guy called Crispus. Crispus comes and listens to Paul, and he finds what's being shared so compelling, he becomes a Christian they elect a new leader of the synagogue called Sosthenes. Now Sosthenes is then enticed to bring a law case against the Apostle Paul, because they're unhappy with what he's saying and also with what he represents. And they bring the law case before a judge by the name of Gallio. Gallio was one of the most powerful judges in the ancient world. His brother was a guy called Seneca, who was a tutor to the Emperor Nero. So this guy not only occupied one of the most powerful judicial positions within the empire of the time, but he also had the kind of family and relationship connections which can be very useful if you ever get personally into trouble. The case is brought before the court and it's thrown out. The gallio says, I have no power to decide this and he throws the case out. And the mob, instead of beating up Paul, who's a Roman citizen, and enjoys the protection of the state, they turn on this poor guy, Sosthenes, and they beat him to a pulp, and they leave him. Now, you may say, Michael, gosh, you're reading an awful lot into, you know, just a couple of opening words, but the answer is, if you were to read the first half of Acts chapter 18, you can read that whole story there, because that's where we get all of that information from. And the likelihood is, we're talking about the same Sosthenes. The question is, what happens next? And it's not too difficult to imagine that Paul, after the crowd have dispersed, goes to the man who brought this case against him to bring him down and extends a hand of fellowship and grace to him, picks him up off the floor, befriends him, helps him, and Sosthenes himself joins Paul. And now, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians, who are hopelessly divided and at war with themselves, he starts off his letter to them with this stunning reminder. I am bringing you greetings and I'm wishing you peace and grace on behalf of God the Father and from our brother Sosthenes. He is saying to them, do you remember him? The guy who hated you so much was willing to go to any means and any length to bring you down. Well, remember what happened to him? Remember the reconciliation we saw there? He is also wanting to greet you with peace and grace and that's why I think Paul flags his name up right at the beginning of this letter. He is trying to remind them what it is possible to do even when you think you're facing an impossible situation. Even when it feels that the goddess of war has been released in your very presence. It is possible to bring about reconciliation. Now, of course, I'm sure none of you have experienced uh, the pain that can come through when people like to play power games with one another um, you know, or maybe even misrepresent you for you know, some kind of personal gain or to win some kind of short-term battle. It is very hard to personally move on, but we are in desperate need in this world of statesmen, men and women, who are able to somehow bring peace sanity, reconciliation at times into hopelessly divided situations. And this is precisely what Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of. We look at the world which we currently inhabit and we see that there are genuine problems and issues. Sometimes what, what the response needs to be firm. And if you think that the apostle Paul here is gonna advocate some kind of wishy-washy, you know, just smile and all the problems will go away and it's easy, He's gonna say some very difficult things if you read the rest of the letter of Corinthians about the nature of discipline and being very strong and very firm and totally unmovable on some issues. What I see in Paul, and I was reminded of this as I was having uh, dinner with um, uh, Mark uh, earlier this evening, and there's a thought um, I remember sharing when I had the privilege of being here about five, six years ago, was what we see in Paul is an ability to draw a very important distinction between the qualities of respect and tolerance. Now, again, I don't have time to unpack all of this. We have a problem with the issue of tolerance today, as we define it. If by tolerance we mean the medieval doctrine developed by the Catholic Church, tolerare malice, I'm all in favor of it. But what we mean by tolerance today is something very, very different than to what it means, meant historically. It is no longer a virtue as classically defined. Let me try to explain it to you the following way. Um, I got the privilege of getting to know Lord Bates before he was elevated to that esteemed uh, position uh, when he was working in Oxford. So let's supposing um, uh, uh, later this evening, um, you come and you ask me a question and you say, so what was Michael like when he was, you know, an ordinary person like you living in Oxford? And I say, did you enjoy talking to him? And I were to say, yes, uh, I found his company tolerable. Well, let's suppose that he's standing behind me as I respond. Is he likely to think, gosh, I've forgotten how much I like Michael. <laughs> let's suppose you were to say, uh, did he ever entertain you? And I say, yes, he cooked for me once or twice. You say, well, what was it like? And I say, I could tolerate the food. <laughs> Tolerance as we define it today, and certainly if you look up the Oxford English Dictionary, which I think has 26 different entries, is a negative proposition in today's popular culture. Tolerance in engineering terms is how much er er uh, error you can build into a system before it collapses. And I don't know anyone who wants to be tolerated. However, I know plenty of people who wish to be respected. Because respect is different from the modern definition of tolerance. But here's the key thing. Tolerance will always be the enemy of freedom in any free society because it is impossible to tolerate somebody and disagree with them. As soon as you disagree, you cease to be tolerant and you become intolerant. So it becomes impossible to meaningfully disagree with anyone if tolerance is the ultimate virtue. It's the enemy of free society. But it is possible to respect someone and disagree with them. And that is something on which Western democracy has built its foundation. Paul and Sosthenes disagreed about ideas, convictions, beliefs at the most fundamental level you can imagine. (coughs) But Paul respected him as a human being and treated him with respect. And if there's one thing we desperately need to recover in this day and age, in a world which is so hopefully divided across all of these means, is to recover the ability to learn how to respect people and to disagree without becoming disagreeable, that we can actually build bridges and deal with some of these difficult issues and to so instill it back into our culture that we can say no and say that is wrong and at the same time not have it personalized to such an extent that you become demonized for simply saying it. What I see in the Gospel and through Scripture are incredible firm foundations illustrated both in the life of people like Paul and also in its teaching of what it means to learn how to respect people while disagreeing with their ideas and at the same time opening up the incredible door to reconciliation and a changed heart that only Jesus Christ himself is able to bring about. Well, I said I speak for roughly half an hour and I think that's roughly half an hour. So if you're still awake, congratulations. Um, uh, That always makes me feel good and uh, i'm very happy to try and take some questions if if you would if you have any for me well, thank you